following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, we are wrestling with some tough themes this morning, as Nate said, sin and depravity and all of that good stuff. Um, so we are looking at the fall of humanity, although I somehow feel that there's an appropriateness after the rugby <laughs> of looking at such negative themes this morning. So we're, we're rolling back into the series this morning on origins, uh, only two messages to go now in this series. So we've been looking at the first three chapters in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and looking at these foundational stories of uh, the origin of creation, the origin of humanity, the origin this morning of sin, uh, the fall, brokenness. Uh, We've worked our way through the creation story in Genesis 1, and then the story of Adam and Eve in in chapter 2. And really now we come this morning in Genesis 3, we come to the first major turning point in the whole biblical story. So everything up to now has been pretty idyllic. The first couple of chapters, everything's kind of working as it should be, uh, the way that God's intended it to. And then you get to Genesis 3, and it all falls apart. Everything comes off the rails. Everything goes south. Everything turns to custard. Everything goes pear-shaped, whatever saying you want to use. Everything hits the fan. It's all bad. It all comes off track. And this really, the story is never the same again after this. It changes everything. And so this is a very, it is a very low point in the whole biblical story. So to read the passage for us this morning is Chelsea, Chelsea Pilgrim. Uh, and let me just say, as Chelsea's coming up, you know, some weeks I try and find a connection between the person and the passage. But this morning, I just want to clarify, because this is about Eve eating the forbidden fruit and bringing the curse of sin upon the whole of humanity, there is no connection between that and Chelsea. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chelsea. Okay, now to start things off this morning, we are going to have a video clip, a little video clip. Okay, now this is from the TV show Desperate Housewives. All right, I'm not going to ask how many of you used to watch that program. You can keep that to yourselves. But we're going to watch just the opening credits of Desperate Housewives. And I want you to think as we watch this of the way that that story Chelsea just read is being portrayed in the opening credits of Desperate Housewives. So have we got that one, Murray? Hmm, interesting, eh? So let's talk about that for a minute. So what you see there is... A whole series of couples, famous couples, famous from art culture. And in each of those cases, you've got a wife who is repressed in some way, beaten down, uh, oppressed, neglected by her husband, maybe undermined, abandoned in some way. So she's relegated to the status of being a desperate housewife. And then at the end, it comes back to the, the Adam and Eve story. And you've got The tree there in the back, which is obviously the tree from Genesis 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you've even got the serpent there, you can see, lurking in the background. And you've got the characters there from Desperate Housewives, and they're all holding the apple. And so clearly they are identifying themselves with who? Eve. Yeah, yeah. They're saying, I I am Eve. That's who they're embodying. That's the character they are embodying in the story. And so Eve kind of becomes the, the model, the archetype for the characters in Desperate Housewives. So think about the message that's going on here subtly. Uh, what is the saying about 
the story of the fall. It's kind of, it's like they're paying homage to Eve as the original desperate housewife. You know, so Eve is kind of seen as this oppressed kind of person. She was a bit repressed, maybe, repressed by her husband in some way. And then by eating from the tree, by eating from the fruit of the tree, she has broken out of that. And she's found her inner strength and she's liberated herself. She's become her own woman. She's thinking for herself. She's become free. She's her own person now. She's become a liberated woman. And so that act of eating the fruit here, it's, it's not really portrayed in a negative way, is it? This is a positive thing. This is something that Eve has done to empower herself and to break out of this kind of repressed mold that she was in. Do you see how the whole biblical story is kind of being flipped around here? It, it's subtle, right? But it is there. It is there. That, that idea that rather than this, this act of eating from the tree being a disaster, being an act of disobedience, this is an act of liberation. This is a positive thing to emulate. This is about people being reclaiming their independence and being who they are and thinking for themselves. So the whole biblical story here is being very subtly subverted, totally flipped on its head. It's a subtle message, but it's there. And that's just one example, right, of the way in which the story is used in pop culture. And it's a pretty obvious example. I mean, the, the themes are right there. But it's one of those stories that, that resurfaces from time to time because it's, it kind of becomes a bit of a cliche. Uh, it's caricatured a bit, the story. It's kind of a stereotype. It's poked fun at in various ways. And so it crops up in different ways in, in popular culture. And so what we want to look at this morning, what we want to ask is how does that kind of portrayal of Adam and Eve and the eating of the tree and so on, how does that square with the biblical story itself? All right, if, we, if we put aside those kinds of popular conceptions of the story and even the impressions that we've got, that we, we, what we think this story is about and what we think it means and so on, when you come back to this story and you read it on its own terms and in its own context and in its own setting, what are we supposed to hear in this story? What messages are we supposed to get out of this? What themes are we supposed to pick up on? And how does this story, which is a very ancient story that seems somewhat disconnected from our lives, how does this apply to our lives in the 21st century? Those are the questions we want to have in mind as we go through this, okay? So we'll do that by diving in and walking through the story. Simple as that. So Genesis 3, and the first character we meet in the story in Genesis 3 is the serpent. The serpent. Now, we are very quick to identify the serpent with Satan. And that's kind of how we're used to thinking. The snake is Satan, Satan is the snake. And that's okay, that's all right up to a point. But just be aware that Satan is not mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. Right? The serpent is never explicitly identified as Satan. In fact, it's not until you get all the way to the New Testament, you get all the way to the book of Revelation, that that connection is made. And it talks about that ancient serpent. Satan. And you, and you get that link there. And so that, that's true that the serpent is identified with Satan, but just be aware he's not actually mentioned there in the text. Probably the best way of thinking about this is that Satan was working in and through this serpent at this point. Okay, The serpent is just a serpent. It's just a snake. Before Genesis 3, it was just a snake. It's one of the creatures that God has made. But Satan has entered into the serpent and is now speaking through it to carry out his plan. Just like Satan entered into Judas 
to carry out his purposes. Now Satan has entered into the serpent to carry out his purposes. So the words of the serpent are the words of the devil, yes, but just be careful about making an absolute one-on-one correlation between the snake and Satan, okay? So the serpent slithers up to Eve, and uh, in verse 1 he says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which, of course, God didn't say, right? That's not what God said at all. God said you couldn't eat from one tree in the garden. So straight away, Satan is exaggerating God's prohibitions. And he's, he's painting this picture of God as a bit of a killjoy. God's overly harsh, overly restrictive, overly limiting. He's just mean-spirited. That's the kind of picture he's trying to paint here of God by exaggerating what God had actually said. And this is exactly what Satan tries to do with us. If he can get you buying into that kind of picture of God, it's much easier for him to lead you into various forms of temptation. And so Eve responds to the serpent and says in verse 2, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Or you will die. Well, where did she get this idea of you must not touch it from? Again, that's not what God said. So Eve is also exaggerating God's prohibitions here. She's also adding on to what God has said. So she's buying into the same picture. She's buying into the lie that Satan is selling here. That God is overly harsh and overly restrictive and he's just out to kill your fun and steal your joy. And she's starting to perpetuate the same thing by exaggerating what God has said. God never said you couldn't touch it, just that you couldn't eat from it. And so then Satan says to her in verse 4, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what Satan is saying here is don't worry about the death bit. Don't worry about dying. That's probably not going to happen anyway. What you need to focus on is all the good things that are going to happen when you eat this fruit. What you need to focus on is how good it's going to be and your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to have the knowledge of good and evil and you're going to be like God. You just focus on that. Don't worry about the the death. That's probably not going to happen anyway. Isn't this so true to life? what, What Satan always wants to do with us is to focus us on the immediate gratification. You know, don't, don't worry about the negative consequences of that action or that thought or that word, whatever it is. You just focus on the thrill in the moment. You just focus on how good it's going to feel. You just focus on how, how great and how happy you're going to be in the short term. You just, that's where your focus should be. Don't worry about other stuff. You know, that's always where he wants to get us. It starts right here. And so in verse 6, it happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And that one act changed history, right? Nothing was ever the same again. Now, to understand the significance of what has happened here and what that one act represents, we need to know a little bit more about this tree. This tree in the middle of the garden. This tree is called, back in chapter 2, it's called the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is something uh, where my eyes have been opened a bit. Uh, I used to assume that what that tree represented was absolutely evil. I used to think that the fruit of that tree represented something that was completely bad, completely sinful, utterly harmful and something that Adam and Eve should never have experienced or tasted or received under any circumstances ever, that it was entirely and utterly ungodly, sinful and wrong. 
And I think that's often how we think about it. But this tree is just represents something evil there in the middle of the garden. But I've changed my view on this. And I've changed my view because of this phrase, the knowledge of good and evil. And I've looked at the ways in which that phrase crops up in other places in the Old Testament, where those three words are used together again. And it happens at various points. Knowledge, good and evil. Knowing, good and evil. And when you trace that out, there's a very distinct pattern that emerges. Let me just read you one example. There's several that you could pick up on, and you might want to follow them through in your own time. But I'll just read you one example. In Deuteronomy 1, verse 39, it says this. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad... That's those three words, same three words. No good from bad. They will enter the land. So when you think about how the knowledge of good and evil works in that verse, who are the ones who do not have the knowledge of good and evil in that passage? It's children. Children don't know good from bad. Children don't have the knowledge of good and evil because they're children, because they're not yet adults. They have not yet come to maturity. They don't yet have wisdom. They don't yet have a full moral awareness of all that good and evil really means. They know a little bit of good and evil, right? You know, parents, even, even very young children have some knowledge of right and wrong. And in a sense, Adam and Eve were a bit like that, weren't they? Even, even before Genesis 3, they must have had some understanding of right and wrong, just by virtue of the fact that God said, don't eat from that tree and do eat from all these trees. So they had some understanding. That, that is, I'm not to do that. And I am to do that. So in a sense, it's like they were, they were childlike. Even though they had adult bodies in some way, just because they'd just been put there, they were still childlike in some way. Still learning, still growing, still developing, still developing that moral awareness, that moral responsibility. And so in this sense, the knowledge of good and evil refers to wisdom. It refers to maturity. It refers to discernment. It refers to having good judgment about life, about not, not just having an informational knowledge of right and wrong, but having good, good judgment and the ability to act rightly or wrongly in different situations. It's a moral maturity, a full moral awareness that comes with being an adult. And that means that what that fruit represented, what that tree represented, was fundamentally a good thing. I know this sounds a bit like heresy, but just hear me out. What that tree represented at its heart, the knowledge of good and evil, was in fact a good thing. Wisdom is a good thing. The knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. Moral maturity is a good thing. These are all good things. And so the million-dollar question is, why did God prohibit them from eating that tree? If the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents something that is good and right, that human beings should desire, that we should attain to, why did God say, don't eat it? Why didn't he say, go crazy? Why didn't he say, eat as much of that as you can so that you become wise and mature and discerning and have good judgment? Why did he say, don't eat from that tree? And the answer, I think, and others have landed in the same place, is that God wanted wisdom to be something that Adam and Eve received from him and not something they seized for themselves. God wanted maturity and discernment to be something they received from Him, not something they seized for themselves. It was always God's intention to bring them to maturity. 
It was always God's intention to bestow wisdom upon Adam and Eve. It was always God's intention to give them what that fruit represented. Maybe not literally that fruit, but to give them the essence of wisdom and maturity and moral awareness. It was always God's intention to do that, but His intention was to do it through relationship. To do it by walking with Adam and Eve in the garden by training them in righteousness, training them in wisdom, and leading them on a journey with himself to bring them from this childlike state that they began in through to full maturity, full adulthood, full wisdom. God always intended to bring them on that journey, but his intention was that it would happen in the context of relationship and not be something they just grabbed for themselves. And so he stuck that tree in the middle of the garden. And that tree confronted them with a question. It's a question they were asked every day when they looked at that tree. Are you going to trust God to provide for you wisdom, maturity, moral awareness, even though they wouldn't have known fully what those things meant, but are you going to trust God to give you the knowledge of good and evil? Or are you going to grab it? Are you going to seize it? Are you going to take control of it for yourselves? You see, it's not that the fruit itself was bad. It's that the inclinations of their heart became bad because they seized for themselves rather than trusting in God. Maybe a helpful way of thinking about this is to compare it to the temptation of Jesus. If you're having a hard time getting your head around this, and I know it's quite a paradigm shift uh, to the way we're used to thinking about this story. Think about the temptations of Jesus. Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the garden, and Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, didn't he? And these temptations have some similarities about them. You remember in one of the temptations, Satan takes Jesus up to the highest point, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, you can have all this. You can have authority over all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. Now, was what Satan offered Jesus, was that a bad thing? No. It was a good, this was something Jesus actually did receive. Authority over all the kingdoms of the world. That's exactly what he is said to receive in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. This was a good thing. But you see the temptation. What Satan is saying is, don't wait for God to give it to you. Don't wait for him to take you on this long, convoluted path to get there. That's going to involve suffering. That's going to involve the cross. That's going to involve death. You can shortcut all that right now. You can short-circuit that whole process, and you can take it right now if you bow down and worship me. That's what Satan tempted Jesus with, and that is what Adam and Eve were tempted with. You seize it now and don't trust God to provide it for you. And you know that the tragedy of it is when they took and they ate, they did get what they wanted in a sense, didn't they? They did receive the knowledge of good and evil in a certain way. They suddenly became aware, far more aware than they were before, of the true nature of good and the true nature of evil. They did see it. They were like children that suddenly lost their innocence far too young because of something that they had done. They did have this kind of awakening. But in the process, they violated their relationship with God. That's the tragedy. That's the tragedy of sin. That's the nature of sin, isn't it? You know, we think about sin often just as breaking rules. We kind of reduce it to that, just breaking laws, breaking God's commands. And at one level, that's true. Whenever a sin is committed, there is a law of God's that is broken. There is that legal dimension to it. But sin is so much more than that. 
Sin is so much more than just breaking rules. Sin is personal. Sin is deep. Sin is holistic. When you sin, you're not just breaking rules. You're breaking relationship with God. That's the essence of sin. It is a violation of our relationship with God. When we sin, we're not just breaking commandments. We're breaking trust. When you sin, you're not just breaking laws. You are breaking faith in God. You are violating your relationship with God. Sin is really any way in which human beings declare their independence from God. That's what it boils down to. Sin is a declaration of our independence and our autonomy from God. It's us saying, rather than trusting God to to provide for us, rather than trusting God to lead us, rather than surrendering to Him, rather than giving our lives over to Him continually, we're going to seize for ourselves. We're going to take it for ourselves. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it on my own terms. I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to be the master of my own fate, the captain of my own soul. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. It's that declaration of human autonomy that we take and we seize and we grab and we are driven by my desires, my interests, my wishes, my preferences, my goals, my ambitions, my thoughts about the matter. That's what drives us when we sin. We end up living the self-directed life rather than a God-directed life, rather than trusting Him, rather than depending on Him. We take and we seize and we grab. That's what sin becomes. And ironically, we kind of end up in exactly the same place the desperate housewives ended up in. That in a sense, eating from the tree is an act of liberation. It is an act of independence. But in the biblical story, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing for human beings to declare their independence from God. That's a tragedy. That's a catastrophe because we cut ourselves off from our Creator. We violate our relationship with God. We violate the image of God within ourselves. We damage ourselves. We damage our relationship with God. We might get what we want. You might get a moment of happiness. You might get some sense of personal vindication. You might make yourself feel good about a particular situation. But you're going to violate your relationship with God in the process because you're taking and seizing and grabbing rather than trusting and depending and surrendering. And we do it every day, don't we? I mean, like every single day, this is what we do. We stand in front of that tree and we eat. And this is who we are as human beings. It's, it wasn't just Adam and Eve. Now it's become all of us. Every day we do it. We do it with our words. We do it with our thoughts. Yeah, even in our own heads. And we think that's okay because it's just in my head. doesn't make it any better. We think that's okay. We do it in our actions towards each other, towards people we don't even know. We do it in our relationship with God just through negligence. You know how this happens. You, just, you can go for days just not really giving any serious thought to your relationship with God. Just not having any serious conversation with God, not paying any serious attention to Him. The days just tick over. And the less we pray, the more distant God seems, the less real His presence seems, the less present He seems to us, the duller and duller and duller and duller His voice gets. And we don't even notice ourselves really ignoring Him. And we just drift and drift and drift and drift. Some of you are probably there right now. And so what's happening, and you don't even realize it, but over days, maybe weeks, maybe years, you've just been taking that fruit. You've just been eating from that tree. And it's not even a conscious choice sometimes, but just through inertia, just through negligence, just through ignoring, just through selfishly being distracted with all of these things over here, just sometimes through the sheer busyness of life. We're taking and we're eating and we're seizing control of our own lives. We're living the self-directed life rather than a god directed life. 
The faces of sin are so many. So many different ways in which we do this every day. We could just go on making application after application after application. But the results are always the same. Sin looks so different, but the results are always the same. And you see in this passage three results, three consequences that follow on pretty quickly from Adam and Eve eating this fruit. Just quickly name them for you. The first is shame. Adam and Eve eat. What's the first thing that happens? They realize they are naked. They sew fig leaves together. They cover themselves. As soon as there is sin, there is shame. Isn't this the pattern in our lives? Yeah, are you experiencing this? That these, these are sins that we know about. When you know that you've messed up, you know that you've done something wrong, what quickly follows is shame. And we just feel, and shame is not just guilt about what we've done, it's feeling awful about ourselves. We feel useless about ourselves. We hate ourselves for it. And so shame leads to self-loathing, it leads to self-hatred, it leads to self-rejection, it leads to self-condemnation. And then we just end up spiraling around sin and shame, sin and shame, and you're in a loop and you don't know how to get out of it. The second thing that results from sin is alienation. God comes looking for the man and his wife. Comes looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. And the first words God says after they've sinned is a question. He says, where are you? Now, of course, he knew where they were. Right? They were the only two people on the planet. It's very unlikely he had lost them at this point. You know? like, where did I put those people? But he says, where are you? It's a relational question. He's asking, where are you in relation to me? That's the question that haunts us when we sin. Because sin cuts us off from God. Where are you now in relation to him? It severs our, our lifeline to God. And it leaves us in this place. We feel like there's this gaping chasm. I'm over here. God's over here. I don't even know how to get back. I don't even know how to find my way back. That's what sin does to you. It just distances you from God. And the third result is blaming God confronts Adam and Eve with their sin, and the first thing they do is play the blame game. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the snake. The snake doesn't say anything. <laughs> he knows his time is up. He just keeps quiet and takes it. But there's all this blaming that goes on. And again, how true to life is this? You know, such an ancient story, but doesn't it just speak right into your life? You know, blaming. You know, we blame everyone else. We blame our family for it. You know, blame our spouse for it. Blame our kids for it. Blame our upbringing. Blame the government. Blame the system. Blame everybody. And all we're doing is trying to shift responsibility from us. And all we're really doing is adding sin to sin. We're adding the sin of avoidance onto whatever it is we've already done. But we are experts at playing the blame game. Yeah, we rationalize. We justify. We excuse. We legitimize our sin to make ourselves feel better. All we're doing is blaming, and it doesn't make it right. So this is a happy story, isn't it? I mean, aren't you glad you came this morning? This is such a weighty story, and I think that's the point. That's why we're lingering with it. We are supposed to feel the weight of this. We are supposed to feel the heaviness of this. We are supposed to feel the burden and the absolute devastation that that one act has caused to the entire human race. We need to feel that. But the reason we need to feel it is not just so we feel worse about ourselves. It is because more, the more you feel the weightiness of sin, the more that you are going to be grateful for the gift of God's grace that he's given you in Jesus Christ. Yeah, The more that you can wrestle with the depths of depravity that human beings have sunk to here and in every subsequent generation, the more grateful you will be for the rescue that God has brought us and the true gift of liberation that has come through Jesus Christ. You know, when Eve ate from that tree, two simple little words are used. She took and she ate. Took and ate. Take 
and eat. You know there's another place in the Bible where those two words appear? Together. When Jesus stands before his disciples and offers them the bread and wine, and he says to them, take and eat. Satan offered Eve that fruit, and it represented death. It represented destruction, tragedy, condemnation. Jesus offers food to his disciples that represents life, represents freedom, represents blessing, represents reconciliation with God. That's the gift. That, that food that Jesus offered his disciples, it is the undoing of all that Satan has done. It's the undoing of all that we have done to ourselves and to other people. What that bread and wine represented, the body and blood of Jesus, it represents the undoing of the curse of sin that had rolled on and on and on and on through every generation. But it didn't come easily. It didn't come cheap, did it? God himself had to leave heaven and taste death in order to undo what Adam and Eve did in the garden. But he did it. He hung there on that cross. He suffered, bled, and died to absorb the full weight of your sin and my sin. And can you feel that? That Jesus hung there on the cross and absorbed every single time that you've taken the fruit, that I've taken the fruit, and every time that we are yet to do that, all the, th all the dumb things you're going to go out and do tomorrow, he's already paid for that. He's already absorbed that within his own body. He's already borne the fullness of our sin and mine, yours, all the things we don't even realize about ourselves that are sinful. We only see a fraction really of it. But Jesus has taken the fullness of it upon himself in his flesh, in his body, so that we would bear it no more. That's the gift. That's grace. I think of the words of that old hymn, It is well with my soul. The second verse says, My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. The words of someone that understood, I think, the gravity of sin, but understood the depths of God's grace, that we bear our sin no more. Because he was punished in our place. And the Lord has laid upon him, as Isaiah says, the iniquity of us all. By his wounds, we are healed. Amen? That's the good news. That's the gospel. And only when you appreciate the weight of sin can you appreciate the gift of grace. But here's the reality, and you and I know this, that even those of us that belong to Jesus, many of us, most of us in this room, we still face this battle every day, don't we? We still stand in front of that tree every day. Just because we're saved by Jesus doesn't mean that that, that battle is, is lost or over in our lives. We still eat from the fruit of that tree every single day. We still walk into all kinds of sin in our life, and that battle is very, very real. But what we need to remember is this. Even when we mess up, stuff up, screw up in all kinds of ways, ways that we know, ways that we don't know, you will never fall beyond the grip of God's grace. You'll never fall out of His hands. He's always got you. His forgiveness is always available. And now God's invitation to us is this. As those who are saved by His grace, to take hold of the power of His Spirit in fighting the war against sin in our life every day and putting sin to death in our life, whatever it looks like. You know what it looks like for you. I know what it looks like for me. At least I know some of what it looks like for me. We've all got blind spots, don't we? we know, you know what the battles are that you're fighting in your life. 
Maybe very personal hidden things. The person beside you has no idea. You know what the habits are. You know what the proclivities are. You know what the addictions are in your life. You know those things that you keep going back to. You know the ways that you keep revisiting that tree time and time and time again. I know in my own life, even as I'm standing up here before you now, I know in my own heart there's a part of me that wants to preach in such a way to be liked. I know there's always a part of me that wants to preach in such a way to to try and sound impressive, to, to get accolades from people rather than to be faithful to God. And that's me going back and eating from that tree again. And that's just happening. I mean, I I verbalize it to you now, but that's just happening in the quietness of my heart. Because sin resides in our motives, the very hidden places in our heart, in our attitudes, in the very deep, dark corners. It's not always the overt, explicit stuff, is it? It's the deep cracks and crevices of our soul, and we battle against it every single day. And God's invitation to us is would you take hold of the power of his Holy Spirit that he has given you to put sin to death in your life? And it is going to be a long journey, and it is going to be a long process, and it is going to be steps forward, and it is going to be steps backwards. But would you hate sin in your life the way that God hates it? Would you have the same loathing for sin in your life that God has for it? And would you appreciate the gift of grace and all that it means? But would you take that battle seriously in your life? that battle against sin, and stop ignoring it, and stop playing with it, and stop dancing with it, and stop just giving into it, and succumbing to it. But take that battle seriously. And take all the resources of heaven that are at your disposal to put whatever that sin is to death. And so as we finish this morning, I want to just give us, because I'm conscious this looks different for every single one of us this morning, and I can't make all the connections, I can't make all the applications, but I want to invite you, as we prepare ourselves for communion, to pray a dangerous prayer. I want to invite you to pray a prayer that David prayed. And it's recorded at the end of Psalm 139. And it goes like this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You know why that's dangerous? Because God might actually reveal something. Something might actually show up. But what you're asking God to do for a couple of minutes is run a spiritual virus check in your life. Is to say, God, I want you just to to work right through my heart, my mind, my body, my soul. I want you just to shine the light of your spirit right through my being. I only know a fraction of my brokenness. But God, if there's any area that you want to put your finger on, if there's any area that I need to address or I need to get more serious about this, and I've just been ignoring this, treating it lightly, If there's any area of sin in your life that God wants to maybe reveal to you for the first time or bring back in front of you, then that is something as he reveals these things and brings it to our head and our heart, just name it before him and just picture yourself laying that at the cross, bringing that to the cross and laying it down. And then that is something you don't have to carry anymore. You don't have to keep carrying the guilt about that. Once you've confessed it, named it, God has taken that. Jesus has already taken that on the cross. He's already paid for it. You don't need to carry shame about that now. You don't need to stay in self-pity and self-hatred about that. You can move forward in the strength and the grace of God and then allow him to breathe fresh grace into your life. Allow him to remind you that you are his son. You are his daughter. You are loved and chosen and cherished and safe in his arms. And then allow him to put in front of you that next step he wants you to take in dealing with that sin in your life. It may be talking to someone. 
It may be a quiet resolution you need to make in your own mind before God. It may be a commitment to a conversation. It may be bringing it out into the light in some way. You know, God will tell you what that next step needs to be. But have the courage to follow through when he brings something to your heart and mind to step into that. So let's pray, and then we're going to take communion together. Father, just in in this moment, we want to ask that you would do exactly what David asked you to do, that you would search us, search our hearts, and you would test our thoughts, and you would reveal, God, if there is any offensive way in us. And God, I'm, I'm really aware, even as I say those words, I think for some of us, it's almost an overwhelming thing to do, because there's so much, there's so many offensive ways in our lives. There's so many things that can just pour into our heads and our hearts and and, and we can just become so burdened by them, God. But I pray that just as we are more aware of our sin, that we would be even more aware of your grace. That just as we become conscious now of how deeply fallen and broken we are, I pray we would become even more conscious of your grace. So God, bring those things to our heads now. Bring those things to our hearts now. The hidden things as well as the obvious things. And as they start coming now to our minds, we name those things before you, Father. We own those things. We don't look the other way. And we don't want to blame that we just own them. And we lay them down at the cross and say, Father, forgive. Have mercy on us, God. We are sinful people. And God, as we lay those things down, as we lay our secret sins in the light of your presence, we just open our hearts and just ask you, Jesus, because of your sheer mercy and grace, to cleanse us and renew us again. Just as you touched the lips of Isaiah and said, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Would you speak those words over our lives this morning? And remind us that we are forgiven and that we are loved and that we are held in your grace. And Jesus, now would you help us to know that next step in putting the sin to death in our lives. We know it's one thing to confess these things to you today, but Father, we want to crucify the flesh with all of its desires and inclinations. We want to get serious about this battle, but we know that it can't just be by willpower alone. So we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us afresh and empower us and place before us the next step we can take in claiming victory over that area of sin in our life. Lord, show us what you would have us do. And we pray, Father, that even as we leave here today and we know that we'll stumble and fall again, that we pray each time we would know your grace, we would know your favor, and we would know your forgiveness in our lives. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.